Well, good morning, church. I'd like to have you find your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13 today. And as you're finding the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, I thought it would be good for us fellows just to be real and, and just reveal, you know, that some of us get interesting Father's Day gifts, don't we? I have reached the point in my life where the most awesome gift I got this year, shout out to my son who might be watching online, I got a gift card for multivitamins. He said it was to help me further along, so I don't know if that, we're going to take that in a positive direction, but uh, that's where I'm at in my stage of life as a grandpa, but some of you maybe still get the proverbial socks and other goodies, but just know I'm with you dads, and so it is good to be in the house of the Lord and worship with you today. We have some exciting things to go over, but before we do, let me share a story with you to prepare your hearts. A long time ago, in my near three decades of serving in the SEAL teams, we used to learn a phrase called crawl, walk, run. And so long before you ever get to get to those cool Jedi Knight skills, you would have to learn the basics. And so one of the things that we would visit every year is the Hilo Dunker. Now the Hilo Dunker, for those who enjoy water, can be very exciting and be a lot of fun. For those who don't like the water, it can be terrifying. And I remember one day when I brought my guys there uh, to crawl for the first part of training, there were some regular folks in the military who had to go through the Hilo Dunker too, and they had to retest, unfortunately for them, on the same day we were using the Hilo Dunker. And so if you don't know how it works, you see the picture in front of you, they put you up in this helicopter skin, and then they raise you up yeah, 15, 20 feet above the water to kind of rock you a little bit, and then they drop it. And it sinks really fast, just like a real helicopter. And then as it's sinking, it rotates. And so you spin upside down, and you're supposed to be in your seatbelt, and you're supposed to wait until it settles on the bottom of the pool, and then you undo your seatbelt, you calmly exit the helicopter, and you come to the surface, and if you do all that in the proper order, you pass. Well, these two unfortunate souls that were with my guys, uh, when they dropped the helicopter and it hit the water, they screamed like they were being uh, murdered, and those two guys unclipped and climbed out of the helicopter. I don't even think they got wet. And so... Uh, they failed. We never saw them again. But the rest of the day was a lot of fun for us because I do believe in crawl, walk, run. And so you start off in normal helo dunk training, just slick with just your body. And so you go down, you do all that, and then they make it a little bit harder and they give you blacked out goggles so you can't see. So now you got to do everything by feel. So let's be honest, the ocean gets a little dark, right? And so you need to know how to do things by feel and find your way out. So that's what regular folks do. I thought, you know what? When do we travel in a helicopter with no gear? Let's bring everything we own, and I'm going to pack all 16 of us in the helicopter. So we're in there with 120-pound backpacks. We got our body armor on. We got our 80-pound chest rigs on. So ultimately, at least 200 pounds of gear plus weapons. And then we go and do it slick our way. And it gets a little more tricky because things get caught up on seatbelts and all the other stuff. And then the fun stuff really begins when you learn to run and you do it blacked out so you can't see. And so just to be extra honorary as the leader of the platoon, I would ask sometimes for the staff to jam the door so we couldn't get out of some of them. So then we had to find another door without being able to see. And so you can see it gets complicated, but I also knew this from experience that if you don't teach your guys how to crawl, walk, run, when the real thing happens, you'll perish. And so it's significant that you prepare yourself for physical war by doing all these hard things first so that you'll be able to succeed on mission. Today, we're going to learn something from the Gospel of Mark 
and how to stay vigilant and to succeed and survive in a spiritual war. But before we get there, I want to share a familiar passage with those of you that grew up in church from 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 16. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy is a wonderful reminder of that little word, all, and how God's word can be profitable for our souls. For those of you just joining us, we've been in a study of the gospel of Mark for some time now, and recently we learned Jesus had a showdown with Israel's religious elite and the political authorities of Israel. Now, you might recognize some of these names if you're a student of VeggieTales, the Pharisees, because they're not so fair, you see, right? And the Sadducees, because they're so sad, you see. Then you have the scribes, the chief priests, and the Herodians. Now, normally, these groups are fighting with one another, but they have been united to fight against Jesus, their long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God. Moments before the scene in Mark 13, Jesus witnessed telling, a telling illustration of Israel's spiritual unhealth. Wealthy Jews deposited large sums of money into the treasury and the temple and received all sorts of praise from the temple leaders. Yet we know they gave out of their abundance compared to their overall wealth. In contrast, a poor, little, a poor widow gave very little, but yet Jesus said she gave all. The privileged gave out of abundance and the widow gave sacrificially. This clearly illustrated the poverty of the temple and God's chosen people. With this in mind, we now turn to a lengthy discourse from Jesus. In fact, it's the longest recorded answer from Jesus of a question or questions asked of him in the entire Bible. His answer will pull back the veil from the future and give the listener and reader a glimpse of the future and things to come. It will also remind each of us the importance of staying vigilant. And that is the title of our message today, Staying Vigilant. And we're going to cover all 37 verses quickly in the Gospel of Mark. Take a look at the first two. And he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now as evening began to arrive around the temple, Jesus and his disciples made their way through the eastern gate. You see this picture, it's a scale model of when my wife and I were there nine years ago. And the gate closest to us is where they were departing from to head to the Kidron Valley. At some point on their journey, one of the disciples commented about the temple. Early historian Josephus mentions even the Romans recognized the temple for its beauty. He continues by saying, The exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up then it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers, it appeared from the distance like snow-clad mountains, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of the purest white. The walls were constructed of huge stones, some 40 to 60 foot in length. Today the temple is gone, but the foundation stones remain. In this picture, you'll see one of the most beautiful views I've ever seen. The foundation stones are behind my wife. And Jesus agrees with the observation that the buildings are great. But then, without any hesitation, he says they would be destroyed. In fact, the physical temple would not survive another 40 years. Before we move on, did you know that according to many Bible scholars, the temple occupied the very place where Abraham, by faith, 
offered his son Isaac as a sacrifice to God. The Lord spared Isaac and supplied a ram to take his place, and soon the Lamb of God would be sacrificed once for all to become the mediator of the new covenant and would render animal sacrifices obsolete. And we'll talk more about that later. As they moved away from the temple, they walked down a ravine called the Kidron Valley. This is one of the better pictures I had in my inventory to give you a glimpse of it. It's not perfect, but as you head through those trees, you walk into the Kidron Valley, and across the way is the Garden of Gethsemane. You're familiar with that, where Jesus spent his last night before he was arrested. And as they walk out of the valley, they made their way up to the Mount of Olives toward their living quarters in Bethany. From this view in the Mount of Olives, you'll notice that they're about 300 foot above the valley floor, and the top of Mount of Olives is about 150 feet higher than the highest point of the temple grounds. It was from this location and above the temple that a few of the disciples asked Jesus two questions. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Consider the information Jesus just shared about the temple with his disciples. I imagine the walk across the valley was a quiet one, and they had a lot to think about. The reason I say that is even Peter, who was known for foot and mouth disease, didn't say anything on that walk. It's kind of funny, right? All right, just making sure you're with me. But after they digested the words from Jesus, the four disciples had to ask for more clarity. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. Jesus' answer begins with what theologians call the Olivet Discourse. Here, Jesus foretells the future of Jerusalem, Israel, and the world in a high-level overview. You might call it the 30,000-foot overview. The healthiest way to proceed in a reading like this is to know that some of the events have come to pass. Some remain in our future, and some have dual fulfillment, meaning the predictions came to pass, but a more complete fulfillment awaits. And a disclaimer... How one determines which events are which has been the subject of debate for hundreds of years by minds much smarter than me, and we don't have the time or space to cover all the different viewpoints today. With that said, there is so much for us to learn and apply to our own lives as we keep our eyes on the big picture. In this first section, Jesus reminds us that the fall of mankind is on full display. Bad things and bad people will continue. But one day, justice will be handed out by God, and you can rest assured that his justice will be way better than anything you or I could think of. These things do not mean they are signs of the end, for they will pale in comparison to actual end-time disasters. Look at verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Here, 
Jesus moves from general information to specific details that will happen to believers. And a review of the book of Acts will show you that all these things took place in the early church and they continue today. Consider Acts chapter 5. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The stoning of Stephen is another example of God working in his children to proclaim Jesus Christ as Savior of the world. And you may recall that God used his testimony to influence a bystander named Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul. And God would use him, a murderer of Christians, to do the same, to proclaim the gospel. Now, I don't pretend that this next story has anything close to the merit of what Stephen went through. But a good friend of mine, almost a decade ago, named Dell, invited me to preach in a prison in South America. And I didn't look up the prison. I was like, yeah, let's do it. And the purpose of this visit was to determine if junior high kids could do an outreach there. He was a go-getter, and he was also an undercover narcotics officer, so he was braver than most. And so we entered this prison called La Victoria, and I looked it up online yesterday just to get familiar with it, and it's called the Cemetery for the Living. It's the most notorious prison in South America. And in this prison, they have room for 2,000 people. On the day that we went there, there were 7,000 men in there. Now... I will tell you that we were searched before we went in quite thoroughly. And when we went in, they then told us no guards live in the prison and that we were on our own. Now, I had a bullhorn, so I was very well equipped to meet 7,000 men. What I didn't expect to see was men with machetes and knives. They had thrones set up in the courtyard, and it was there that I thought I was going to have my Stephen moment. My whole body was tingling, and to be honest, I was quite afraid. But I thought, if you're going to go down, go down properly, right? And so I started preaching, and Dell started translating, and I had that bullhorn, and then I gave it to my translator, and we were going back and forth, and I thought, today is the day. I will die. And I thought it wise not to tell everybody there he was an undercover narcotic officer, too. And I also determined this was not the proper place to do junior high outreach in the future. So I kept my job in youth ministry. You're welcome. Now, look at a lot of survivors from junior high ministry in here. In my study this week... I found something that was very sobering. I learned of a woman's example from the 1500s. Author Will Campbell tells the story of an Anabaptist woman who lived in Antwerp, a city in Belgium. She had been arrested a few days earlier for proclaiming the gospel of Christ as she understood it from her personal reading of scripture and from study and discussion with others of like faith. She underwent the inquisition of the clerics for heresy and bodily torture of the civil authorities, but she would not buckle under their pressure. After six months of daily torture, she would not promise to stop preaching the word from her own reading of the Bible. So the authorities did what they thought they had to do. They sentenced her to death on October 5th, 1573. Included in the sentence was the stipulation to the executioner that her tongue be screwed fast to the roof of her mouth so she may not testify along the way as she took her, as they took her to the stake where she was to be burned. That day, her teenage son, Adrian, took his youngest brother, three-year-old Hans, and they stood near the stake so that her first and last issue might be near her at the moment of her death. Three other women and a man were to die that day for the same terrible offense, unauthorized preaching of the gospel. When the flames were lit, 
Adrian fainted. He could not witness the horror, but when it was over and the ashes had cooled, he sifted through them until he found the screw that had silenced his mother's tongue. It would not silence his. Tertullian, who was born in 160 AD, said to his persecutors, We multiply whenever we are mown down by you. The blood of Christians is seed. Church historians' estimate is 70 million Christians have been martyred. What may surprise many of you is that 45 million happened to have been martyred in the 20th century alone. In the last decade, an average of 270 believers have been martyred every 24 hours, over 1 million in 10 years. Earlier this month, 46 Nigerian Christians were killed by terrorists. 28 churches have been destroyed. This has displaced 30,000 Christians in Nigeria. In 2022, 5,000 Nigerian Christians were killed. And this is one place on planet Earth. The world's not advertising this, are they? They're not lifting up all these martyrs because they don't want you to know about it. Christians are quietly being killed all around the world. And we need to wake up. Revelation 6 says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. One of the things that I would encourage you as followers of Christ is... Take the time to pray for your brothers and sisters around the world. The same persecution they face today very well could land on our doorstep. The least we can do is pray that God would give them courage to stand for Jesus Christ. Let's bring it a little more personal. A few years ago, a young lady from Persia was baptized after she accepted Christ at the Tyson's location. She said, this news is so wonderful, I have to go home and tell my family. And she did, and we've never heard from her again. My prayer this week as I've been studying this is that God would raise this church up to be just as bold as these examples so that we would stand and proclaim Christ wherever he leads us. It's good news. Now, you might be here today exploring Christianity, and you might be thinking, what is this guy talking about? Why in the world would you die for this story? And all I can tell you is what Jesus has done for me and what I've learned in my 40 years of studying God's word. And it's this. I was broken and hopeless, and Jesus made a way for me to be restored. The Bible tells us this beautiful picture about how God, the creator of the universe, lay outside sometime on a clear night and look at those stars. This same God breathed those out, and he wants to know you. He wants to love you. That's a big deal for some of us. It's a really big deal. And the same God knows that we're broken. And let's be honest, every one of us are stubborn and sinful, and we shake our fist at God thinking we know better. Now, you parents, since it's Father's Day, maybe you've had a two-year-old tell you no before because they knew better. And let's be honest, show of hands, was that offensive that a two-year-old shook their fist at you and thought they knew better? Now, how much more insane is it that you shake your fist and I shake my fist at a God who created everything? And yet that's what we do. And to make matters worse, the Bible says, you and I, 
We cannot earn our way to heaven by good deeds. There's not going to be a contest up there saying, how much should you give? Oh, I gave this much. The only reason we'll be there is because of what Jesus did, and we placed our faith in him. And that's the good news. The gospel is that Jesus came to earth, and he lived this perfect life, and he died in your place, and he died in mine. And I think sometimes we go by that too quickly. He did it without any sin. Think of the temptation and trials you've had in your own life. They're hard, aren't they? They're hard for me. And he did it with no sin. And then he gladly went to the cross, and he died in your place. Now, I would happily step in a bullet, in front of a bullet, to save, to save my wife, my children, my grandchildren, people that I love. But I can't really imagine that I would step in front of that bullet and actually die for my enemy. And that's what Jesus did. Every one of us, when we were lost, were at war with him. And yet he still died for you. Don't lose fact of that. That's the gospel. And the best news of all is that he didn't stay in that grave. God raised him from the dead. So that every man, woman, boy, and girl who places their faith in Jesus Christ, they have hope. So that if one day they stand in front of the executioner, they can say, bring it on. Because I will be in glory with my Father forever and ever. And that's the gospel. And the best news of all is this applies to everyone. It means everyone who places their faith and trust in Jesus. You can have hope. And that eternal life can begin today. That's the gospel. And I believe with all my heart, that's why God sustained me on all those battlefields, so I can have one more day to tell one more person about how much Jesus loves them. Such good news. All right, we don't have time to keep going on that, but I do pray that if God's tugging on your heart, you'll come talk to me right after, because I want to tell you about Jesus. Verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation, that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect, but be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Now, Jesus' previous words describe the presence of evil in our fallen world. Now, a specific event will signal that a new time frame has arrived on the world stage. This transitional period will eventually give way to the kingdom of God. Bible scholars call this time frame between eras as the Great Tribulation, based on the term in verse 19. Jesus said the event that would signal this period is the abomination of desolation. This is the phrase he uses from Daniel 9, verse 27. Take a look at it. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Quick review of these terms. An abomination describes anything that's loathsome, disgusting, or repugnant. The Old Testament uses it to describe sinful activities that are an affront to a holy God. Desolation means destruction or depopulation, often used to describe the aftermath of a plague or genocidal army invasion. 
Both Daniel and Jesus use this phrase to describe the unmistakable sign that the transition has begun. Actual observers of the abomination of desolation will know it has arrived without question. Some Bible commentators say it could be like an event when Antiochus IV, and he entered the temple and offered a pig on the altar around 167 B.C. Another example is when Titus entered the sanctuary as the Romans were leveling the city, and his soldiers brought their standards into the temple, followed by sacrifices. Historian Josephus said of Titus and the Roman army slaughter that so many people were crucified, you could not find any wood in Jerusalem. And as awful as these scenes are, Bible scholars agree they are but foreshadows of the Antichrist's desecration in Revelation 13. What follows this event is conflict, pestilence, persecution, and disasters unlike anything the world has ever seen. Sadly, as these events unfold, false messiahs will continue to lead people astray. Even more reason to remember Jesus' words, but be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. One of the ways to be on guard is to have a Bible reading plan. You hear me and other people in the church commending you to be in a Bible reading plan. If not ours, find another one. But it's key to be in the Word. And the best time to start a Bible reading plan is today or to restart it. Maybe you fell off the wagon. Get back into the Word of God so that you will not be led astray. All right. So far, we've had some pretty sobering words, and it's really... It's one of those messages that just hits you in the gut in a certain way. So how about some good news? Take a look at the next few verses. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. After this horrible transition period of tribulation, the end of the world as we know it will happen. Soon, a new start for creation will arrive on what the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord. When the world couldn't get any darker, Jesus, the true Messiah, will arrive. Listen to how the prophet Daniel describes Jesus' return. Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This event will bring human history to an end, and God will summon all of humanity to stand trial before him. In verse 23, Jesus cautioned his followers that they should not be taken unaware by these events. Jesus did not want his disciples to get so involved in the prophecies of the future that they would neglect the responsibilities of the present. Or my country boy way of saying this is don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. To prevent this, Jesus closed the Olivet Discourse with two parables. Verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. In the early spring, fig trees produce small edible buds followed by large green leaves. This food and this fruit was a common food for local peasants. This was the current situation when Jesus was teaching. Later in May and June, the normal crop of figs would appear and would be ripe 
for harvest. Jesus uses this example from local agriculture, which the disciples would have understood, to explain the future and that it will be known when it arrives. Just as locals know fig season has arrived, so will the end be known without question. Verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, Daryl Bach is a New Testament scholar, and he calls this pattern acts, referring to the destruction of the temple as a pattern for the events at the end of the age. This fits our earlier study of Mark 9, if you remember, when Jesus told those standing near him they would not taste death until they had seen the kingdom coming with power. There, the transfiguration prefigured the resurrection and the second coming of Christ. This generation would be both the people of Jesus' day and A.D. 66 through 70, and as a pattern for judgment to take place after the abomination of desolation at the end of history. Then listen to the prophet Isaiah. He reminds us in chapter 40, verse 8, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. What a great reminder to Jesus and his disciples. Everything will pass away. They are not to depend on the world or world powers. We would be wise to remember only two things last forever, the word of God and the souls of mankind. And we need to be a people that invest our time in both. Verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Jesus speaks clearly in his closing. First, no one can set a date on when these events will take place. No one. Second, believers must stay vigilant. Jesus urges all of us to live in a state of readiness. We're to continue to live, make plans, and glorify his name, but we're also to live as if we would see him return today. Now, some view this passage as disappointing, for they want more information. We need to remember Jesus gave us enough information to live on mission. Now, there were many times in the military when I was given a mission and I was trying to gather as much intel as possible before we proceeded to the target. Uh, the main reason is because I actually wanted to come home to my family and survive. But I would gather as much as I could, but at some point, to execute the mission, you have to go. As the church, God's made it very clear what the mission is for us. To be faithful, to glorify God, right? To make disciples, and to plant those churches, and to proclaim the name of Jesus. So we know what we're supposed to do, church. And yet, many of us still want more information, and we want to sit on the bench and keep discussing policies and procedures. Meanwhile, people are dying every day, standing and proclaiming Christ around the world. And we need to get engaged. One, to pray for them. Two, to financially support people overseas. Three, maybe to go. Some of you are being called to go and lift up the name of Jesus. There's a lot of ways we can get involved, church, but to sit on the bench is unacceptable. Now, for sure, there are many questions left unanswered for disciples and followers of Christ today. 
Most people want details about the future because it gives them power. And let's be honest, we all like to think we control our own destiny. Remember this as we wrap up the teaching from this text. We have received enough information to give us assurance, and despite the evil around us, God remains in control, and there will be a day of reckoning. Daily obedience to God is our best and wisest course of action. Now, I'm sure a few of you are thinking, thanks, Pastor, for the uplifting Father's Day message. You're the best. <laughs> to be sure, as I looked at the scheduled text for this Sunday, I was also thinking, not the passage I would have picked. Yet, could there be any better charge for the church and dads for staying vigilant and to live like they'll meet the Lord Jesus today? As I navigated through my teen years, I found it challenging to grasp preachers' teaching regarding end times. That's why I started today with 2 Timothy chapter 3 to remind us that all of God's word can edify and build up our souls. So how do we apply Mark 13 to our world today, and how will this text equip the saints for daily living? I'm glad you asked. Allow me to share three brief applications that were shared with me when I was younger, and each are appropriate for every man, woman, boy, and girl listening. Also, considering it's Father's Day, there are great reminders for dads of all ages, too. And may I also remind those of you who hurt on this day, remembering dads for multiple reasons that your Heavenly Father loves you. I've been praying for many of you because I know today is especially hard. So I'm glad you're here, and I want to remind you that you have a Heavenly Father that loves you. Let Him comfort you, and may you find rest in His perfect love. Earlier, I shared a picture of how to crawl, walk, and run for physical wars. Staying vigilant for spiritual wars requires us to practice our own version of crawl, walk, run, especially from our text today. So here's the first thing we need to practice. Staying away. You're like, what does that mean? It means stay away from anybody who makes specific predictions about the Lord's return. In my lifetime, I've seen numerous cults and Bible teachers make predictions that did not come true. And I can tell you, they should be glad they didn't live in Old Testament times, because the penalty for false predictions was death. Now, one of the things I've learned when I was in the military, one of my specialties was medicine. And I had the privilege to go through what they would call PA school on steroids. And so I would do physical exams. And I remember, after seeing about 100 healthy ears, I was like, I think I understand what an ear looks like. I'm like, all right, there it is. And then lo and behold, because I know what the standard is, because I know what a healthy ear looks like, when I look in and I see one that has bacterial infection or something else going on, it stands out. That's not what it's supposed to look like. The reason we commend you to be students of the word is that if someone comes along and tries to tell you something differently than God's word, you'll recognize it for being a lie and for being false. And so the first thing you want to do is stay away from people who predict Dates. It's hard to picture a bigger contradiction to our Lord's instruction in Mark 13. So stay away. And then practice staying awake. It's right from the Word of God. Jesus stressed this at the end of his discourse with the disciples. This teaching must have passed on to the Apostle Paul as well. Consider his letter from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Speaking of staying awake, 
let me share some extra biblical with you that should keep you awake. And dads, this is especially for you. Take a look at the classic American family today at home spending time together in this picture. It's quite comforting, isn't it? In my research this week, I discovered that the average American family spends well over seven hours every day looking at a screen. If you round up to eight hours, we spend over 121 days a year looking at a screen. That is a third of your life. A third of your life. Conversely, we spend just one hour a day with our kids. This gives us just under 11 days a year with our children. There is some good news here, though. This one hour a day is up from 16 minutes a day from 1965. So good job, dads. But I think we can do better. And now that you know this hard truth, what will you do, dads, as you lead your home? What will you do, men, as you lead? I think we can all do better in reducing screen time and reclaim that real, authentic face time as it's meant to be. We are to practice staying away. We're to practice staying awake. We also need to implement one more thing, and that is staying alert. People who are staying vigilant are on the alert. And there's no time for complacency. One example that I shared with my wife is when I deployed overseas, it would have been really easy to leave my weapon behind to go to the gym or to go to the chow hall because it was kind of a pain to keep it with me. But I also knew that in a war zone area, the enemy could attack at any time in any location. And so rather than be complacent and grow lazy, I always had a weapon on me because I wanted to make sure I could fight my way back to even better weapons, get those upgrades like some of you guys like to play your video games, and to get a better weapon system so I can make my way back to my wife and my kids and those grandkids. And so we want to practice this and we want to make sure that we are staying alert, church. And we need to be on guard so that we are not deceived or lulled into complacency. Nor should we live our lives anxious about the end times. Sometimes people can take it so far that they forget we're supposed to place our faith and trust in our creator, God. So we're not to be anxious. And because of God's word, we know the truth and we know our mission. And Mark 13 also makes clear the future. Although we don't know the exact moment of our Lord's return, we do know that his return is certain. And that should cause our hearts as his children to rejoice. Church, I hope you understand that we are at war. Staying vigilant includes keeping our hearts and lives pure. We need to stay in God's word and ask him for help to live holy lives. Because on our own, it will be impossible. But if we rely on God, it is definitely achievable. Now, why is this important? Because Jesus could return at any moment. Don't you want to be found faithful when he does? And realize this, we will all stand before God to give an account of our lives. May God help each of us to remain vigilant, and may we take the charge from the Apostle Paul found in 1 Corinthians as our own. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Well, here's what we're going to do. In the past weeks, we've been giving you all prayer prompts, and we've been participating in them as well. And so I want to give you three to look at today, and I want you to spend some time before the Lord, and then I'll close this. The first one, if it shows up for you, is knowing Jesus could return at any moment, what changes is the Holy Spirit guiding you to make in your daily living? 
Think about it. If he were to come back today, or let's push it to the future and say tomorrow, is there some house cleaning God's leading you to do? Spend some time asking him to search your heart. And then surrender those areas to him. Secondly, ask God how you can practice staying vigilant. I've given you a couple examples. Certainly they're not exhaustive. And then lastly, Dad, where's God leading you so that you may model vigilance for your family? Let's go before the Lord in prayer. As you continue to pray, I'd like to ask every man, even young boys if they're present, to stand and allow me to pray for you. Not just fathers, but every man as we solidify and unify as men in this church. Would you stand and allow me to pray for you? Let me charge you with the word of God. Father, I'm grateful for men who are here worshiping you today. Some because they are your children. Some maybe because they're exploring Christianity. Some because perhaps they were invited. But I'm grateful they're here. Uh, we all know that keep track of church stats that notoriously Father's Day is the most absent day of men in the church. And so I am thankful for the men that are present. Father, I pray that you would challenge and encourage their hearts. Uh, for those that are your children, may you remind them of the importance of being a man and standing in this world that is so lost, standing for your word and standing for what is true. Father, we need you, and we know we can't do it on our own. So may you work in and through us so that we can impact this world for your glory. Father, if there are men here today that don't know you, I do pray that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would establish this relationship with you, and they too would know you as their heavenly Father. Father, there's coming a day when we will stand before you. And as men, I pray that you will do a great purging of our hearts. Remove anything that is not pleasing to you so that we can serve you in gladness and not be ashamed on that day when you return. Oh, Father God, may it be so. And for the ladies in the church, I pray that you would rally around these men, the men in your lives, that you would encourage them, you would cheer them on and uh, just applaud their efforts as they become students of God's word. Ladies, know this, the man in your life, whether he's your husband, your dad, granddad, or other father figure, know that there's a man there that desperately wants your respect and he wants to honor the Lord. And he, know he, he, just, he knows he can't do it on his own. So may you be a prayer warrior on his behalf. Father, I'm thankful for a church that takes prayer serious. And I pray that we remember that we stand here today because of what Jesus has done. What he's done is enough. And help us to rest in that and help us to remember 
that for those who have placed their faith and trust in him, one day we will spend forever and ever with you. Oh, Father, be pleased as we worship you now with our voices, as we sing loud to you and praise the King of Kings for what he has done. And I ask it in Jesus' name. The church said, Amen. Would you stand with me, church?